It's us. It's our show. It's us. It's you. our show. It's Buenos you. Dias. It's me. It's the Annie Gamers Book Club. Are we starting? Is this the start? This is this is it. I oh, just walked fuck. in. <laughs> I just walked in. I was typing. Shit. I was terrible. I I I came in sipping on a glass of red wine, singing a little nonsense song to myself. Good morning, good evening to all readers of all shapes, all sizes. I can't believe this is it. Hi everyone, it's me, TNX. Yep, and it's me, it's David Estrella, the host of the Anagamers Book Club, host of the Anagamers Podcast with Evan Min Min Minto. And here, we're, here we are to talk about a book. Mm. Talk about a, a book that is, as far as I can tell, it already has an anime. We uh, yeah. we came just a, a tad late. We, we were, I think we were hoping. Not for lack of trying. I think the intention was to get this one out before the anime was airing, and now it is airing. At least we, you know, we don't do the thing where it's like we plan for something and then it's just like really late, like the anime is not airing anymore, <laughs> which has happened on occasion. We can still get this one in. We're here to talk about the Apothecary Diaries. It's a uh, volume two, so we're continuing on with um, this series that we started, mm. and I think a thing that we do here is that we tend to call a winner we call winners we select the titles that eventually get anime adaptations i mean we don't really choose like a lot of the stuff is just bound to get an anime adaptation just because they're always looking at light novels and manga to see what's uh, what's good to adapt and we just we just have excellent taste look our uncle works at japan he works at the country the, japan yeah. and has uh-huh. the power to bring anything that it is that we would like into reality for us in the form of an anime. Mm-hmm. That's that cool Japan money. Yeah, and we just happened to get it done for the Apothecary Diaries. David Strayer, did you enjoy yes. Volume Two of Kusuriano Hitorigoto? Um, so as I remember, I think I was really into Volume One. Yeah. Uh, when we were talking about it, you know, Volume Two didn't do it as much for me. And I'm not sure what it is because I don't think that the writing has significantly changed. Although I think that the writer has had some ideas that they wanted to implement into volume two that are not necessarily in volume one. Like volume one was a trial phase and volume two is now maybe a little bit closer to the sort of story that the writer wants to tell. And mm, well, let's just let, let me just say it's like it's a mixed bag for me. What do you what do you think? It is one of those things where four or five events happen in the novel, but there's not really a lot of forward motion, which normally isn't a problem. But I feel like for a series like this, where you're following the characters, there should be some kind of forward plot motion. I feel like there should be something happening to them, especially because this has like 11 or 12 volumes or something. I did enjoy it. Um, I think I was a little bit sold on this compared to the first volume, but I do think that it it is it, it suffers from comparison to that first volume because there is mm. just there's, it's a little bit overstuffed and there's a lot going on and it could have benefited from a little just a little bit more greater focus uh i did enjoy it though it's it is a lot of fun hanging out with these characters and mao mao and jinchi specifically yeah don't get me wrong it's like it's a good it's a good read but better than volume one i, I wouldn't say so and it's more for me it's more of a direction sort of take that i'm i'm trying to go for here you know what my problem is my problem is that it uh i'm getting big whiffs of trying to do a sherlock holmes thing uh, it's yeah. very much doing a sherlock holmes thing almost um, <laughs> all of the notes that i took while reading this were specifically about the fascination of the people who love mystery novels and and the peculiar mm. way they expect their stories to be written that's so my turn off yeah i definitely that's my get turn off coming from yeah that's my it's uh, you know i don't know why but i've been thinking about umi neko a lot today yeah <laughs> it's, one, it's one of those things where like because i had this impending like i had this scheduled in my free time i wasn't thinking about apothecary diaries volume two i was thinking about umi neko and i think i now i've like made that connection it's like why didn't i enjoy apothecary diaries volume two as much compared to volume one even though they are in that vein of being 
mysteries, but more they're more like character drama sort of thing. I don't know if I would say character drama, but I would say like it's definitely about characters, right? Because these are light novels. Yes. And one of the light novel selling points is that these are characters that you aren't really getting in like other other works of fiction. It's like, yes, these are we're working with the archetypes that you know and love from like anime and manga, but there's just it's a little bit more literary, right? It's just like a little bit more literary spice on the stuff that you already like from other yeah you make a good point there is a lot of this that's influenced by other things but there's also not really anything else that's like this that's like an Mm -hmm. imperial china murder not china they never say china no they don't you've always you you corrected me on this one last time and it's like Mm. oh yeah they never mentioned that it's china it's like it is a country it is a land very old land and they never suggest that is China, but a lot, a lot of what you're reading in here is like it's supposed to give you this image of of China. And I think the Umineko comparison is that because Umineko and Monogatari even have this thing where they have Japanese characters fighting against the very concept of Western story structure and attempting to assert their Japanese identity in the face of having Western story structure imposed on them. Mm. And in Monogatari, Aragi literally has to fight Dramaturgy, an episode in Guillotine Cutter, and <laughs> in... Yeah. And in Umineko, the Nox rules, which are a very specific set of guidelines for what your mystery novel should and should not contain are characters in that i guess that's umineko spoilers but you know (laughs) very it's been out for like 20 years yeah very very round you would struggle to figure out anything major about the plot based off of that and to bring it back to our bugbear on this show verisimilitude i do think part of my problem Mm. with apothecary diaries is that i just i want the crunchy setting details i want to know stuff about this setting and this society and the way that it operates and so many things happen in this volume too and i feel like you could have cut a little bit of them out and then just had some stuff that fills in more about the world because you're right they never say this is imperial China's but it's not its own thing either it's hard to get a read on what it's meant to be and I I, want to crunch I want to I want to know things about the setting maybe there's like a mystery that can be solved by the characters in the novel but couldn't be solved by the audience because we don't have the specific cultural knowledge or you know Mm. Mao Mao's like she's an outsider to the way that the palace works so she's she's kind of our, our entry into this world and if the if she doesn't know something the characters could explain it to her yeah i just want i want some like more crunchy setting verisimilitude details to sink my teeth into and i don't feel like that's of great concern to the mystery novel people who are much more concerned with like internal consistency and well if you set up a mystery it has to be solvable in this specific way rather than well where are they getting potatoes and tobacco from (laughs) <laughs> what is important to this society on a on a spiritual level you know what does their their vision of the afterlife look like and how does that affect their day-to-day there's even a scene in this novel where mau mau has to interrupt a ritual it's some kind of religious ritual but the nature and the purpose of it is left extremely vague and i'm just like that's a missed opportunity you could have told us something about this world by by telling us about what this ritual is for and, and what it's meant to do yeah, I'm, kind of, I'm glad you're getting all these details out because I think for once I'm sort of on board with what you're saying about the verisimilitude. Some scenes, they just kind of exist in a void. It could be China. It could be, it could be anywhere. And I think one of the issues is that it really is like trying to shoehorn in some old Sherlock Holmes bits into this kind of story because it does the thing where I'm sure it's not just Sherlock Holmes. I'm sure this is a conceit of mysteries where it's a bunch of seemingly unrelated narrative threads all converging at the end, right? Yeah. But before before we talk about all this other stuff, I want to talk about the characters that are actually in this oh. book. Let's talk about Mau Mau for a second. Mau Mau. Mau Mau is the intersection between precious little Meow Meow and <laughs> fucked up little man. Yeah. Mau Mau. You know, I still like Mau Mau quite a bit through volume two, even if I don't feel that the story is serving the purpose I do, I do still quite like Mau Mau, where she doesn't have like a complex about being like this little runty girl in 
this very luxurious palace filled with like the most gorgeous women that have ever walked the earth past present and future right? yeah because we're talking about the emperor here and the emperor's a horny old dog as has been told to the audience time and time again mm-hmm. Mau Mau grew up in a brothel that's another that's another important detail it's like that's what that's one of those weird details where it's like Mama is like so asexual, but she grew up in a brothel, right? She's surrounded by all these gorgeous people. She's working alongside Jinshi, who is said to be like perhaps the most dangerous individual mm. in the palace, just based on his beauty. They talk about Jinshi's beauty in this novel more than I talk about my beauty, which is saying something. Yeah, I'm getting big Uncle Nax vibes when I, whenever I read about Jinshu. They called him irreproachably handsome, which is a wonderful turn of phrase. I really like that. <laughs> and like, oftentimes, like Jinshu will simply just walk into a room, and that's like that's a whole paragraph describing mm. how he walks into the room and yeah. like everybody's reaction to how he walks into the room and what he's wearing and how he smells and yeah. the grace with which he moves and things mm. like that. Yeah, and what makes a lot of this work for like 200 plus pages is that Mau Mau no-sells all of this. <laughs> she just doesn't react in the way that everybody else is reacting, and this is what kills him. Like, Jinshi doesn't care about anybody else's reaction to the way that he puts fruit in his mouth and the way that he, you know, picks up his writing instrument and conducts his business. No, he wants a reaction from Mau Mau, who is not giving it to him. The longer that this goes on, the more bothered he is about it. So, like, mm. Jinshi... I don't feel like there is a romance going on in here, but there's like, there's something. It feels like a competition that could be maybe misconstrued as a romance, but because Mau Mau is like giving no feedback, rather like the only feedback she gives is like when uh, she looks at Jinshi, like he's like some sort of dying frog cooking in the <laughs> summer heat. Yeah. Those bits are good. Those bits are good. Whenever like the, the, the writer describes how Mau Mau looks at Jinshi, those are good. They have a really good dynamic, which makes me kind of annoyed that I don't like the rest of it a little bit more, because I do like their petty little power struggles that they have. Mm. Mau Mau is very much, like you say, the, the kind of Sherlock Holmes archetype, where she's very learned, but she's lacking in social graces, which honestly is a really weird quality for someone who grew up in a brothel to have, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> No, but she's got like, I think she's got like a little bit of common sense, not like all the way common sense because she is self-inflicting poison upon herself. Well, she's also not very good at convincing other people verbally to do what she wants. She's very blunt mm. and she's very direct, which gets her in trouble a couple of mm. times. She can't Yeah, and her social standing is pretty low words. as well. Yeah, because she's just a maid in this, in this big palace. Although we find mm. out in this novel, and this is a, a spoiler, but that's what you come here for. It turns out that Jinshi is not actually a eunuch, weirdly. I was yeah, really disappointed that was by weird. this. In keeping with the theme of apothecarism and herbalism, he is taking some kind of medicine that is chemically castrating him, but not physically castrating him. Yeah, this is a revealing detail. And not just him, it's um oh, the other guy, Gaoshun? Yeah, Gaoshun. Yeah, yeah. They're both not actually eunuchs, which is, uh, I don't know, I was really disappointed by this because as a history buff, that's just a really interesting aspect of, of Chinese culture. The eunuch class started because they felt that if a person didn't have any family, then they would be more loyal to the emperor. But of course, the eunuch class was only ever interested, like all people, in their own... <laughs> in, like, their own... <laughs> Uh, status and their own money and their own wealth and their own influence so it didn't really work that well but it continued on in China for a really really long time and it's this really fascinating part of history and rather awful part of history as well having your, your genitals non-consensually mutilated like that is really really horrible and i don't i like that mm. this character represented that that was really interesting to me and i'm i was kind of disappointed when it turns out that well he's actually uh, an intact male's veterinarian say uh, and he's been using medicine to uh <laughs> suppress his sex hormones as veterinarians say huh yeah i'm around a lot of veterinarians what are you gonna do they say intact that male is, a lot. that is that is a turn of phrase let me tell you <laughs> Yeah, even like Gaoshun mentions like, oh, it doesn't even really work all that well because 
he still impregnated uh, his wife. Mm. Like he's got he's got kids. Yeah. I don't know how this gets by the emperor, right? Like your eunuch is having children. Well, the emperor is just a horny old man who's constantly banging his massive harem of beautiful women and doesn't have doesn't have time for anything else. <laughs> oh, it it rules, dude, because he like has he's the guy with the least amount of time of anybody in this book. Like mm. as important as the emperor is, he literally has no time away from the banging to actually like come into play in the story. Um, and it's like it's seen throughout um, Mau Mau. OK, this is a weird scene. Mau Mau delivers a lecture to the, uh, the the highest ranking consorts in the palace. Right. She's teaching them the the uh, pillar arts, I guess. She grew up in a brothel, so she's very knowledgeable about different sex techniques and the ways of pleasure and, and things like that. Despite have having textbooks. not really any interest in it herself. Yeah. They have textbooks in not Japan, uh, not Japan, not China. That was, I, I don't know. I think that might have been like a flub on the writer's part because we're talking about like writing strips and I'm sure you're a little bit more knowledgeable about this, but I don't think that they were binding textbooks in in China just yet, right? So there was- Especially not they, brothels. They didn't have the, the codex, but they definitely would have had diagrams and, and things depending on the- the time and the place because they they had paper but they didn't necessarily mm-hmm. arrange it into a codex um not everybody so that, had paper yeah that paper paper was kind of a luxury yeah that checks out uh, they talk about the production of paper a lot in this book as well mm. that was kind of a weird scene because mao mao she just like sighs and is like oh, okay let's just you know let's just get this over with and like she's aware that although she's got to get del- deliver this lecture to the consorts like she's aware that all the other ladies in the uh in the inner, inner palace are going to be curious about this so it's like it's never mentioned in the text what she's teaching it, i mean it becomes obvious right it becomes obvious because of the reactions to everybody gives when she's handing out these textbooks but i don't know were they were they like was the writer trying to, like, avoid getting, like, knocked for some sort of, like, content stuff in here? Is it just, like, not that sort of story? Was it played up as, like, just kind of like, oh, it was just kind of like a joke? I think it's much easier to say that, like, an exotic sex technique is exotic and pleasurable if you don't provide details. Because inevitably someone will be like, well, I did that once and I didn't like it that much. In the first book, she taught the consult how to do... Uh, Pizery. <laughs> it was explicitly. <laughs> it was explicitly teaching them uh, how to tit fuck the emperor, mm. <laughs> which is why the emperor is so busy. Right? Yeah, yeah. And apparently that was a ten out of ten. He liked that one. Who doesn't? Yeah. Honestly, I think that? she's also like distributing pornography. Yeah, she's because it's like, like illustrations she's... <laughs> of stuff to do and stuff like that. Yeah, I think she's got to like. I don't know. She has to like deal with the, i don't know like deal with the emperor like very indirectly so what she does is just like she just leaves a porn mag lay, laying around we've been a bit negative on this book thus far and i will say that i did enjoy it for one and as a second thing it does kind of give you that feeling of like the emperor is everything to all of these people and it all flows through him and everything is happening at his behest and for his benefit but also mao mao is just like a low-level palace servant and never sees him she's never face to face with him and he just Mm. kind of exists on the fringes of the novel and i that feels like what being in that situation must be like that all of these things are happening for the benefit of this person whom you never interact with directly Mm -hmm. like yeah you'll you'll deal with like uh like a supervisor but you won't deal directly with like the you know the uh the vips you know the president well, the emperor will tell someone to do something, and they'll tell their underling, and they'll tell their underling, and eventually it gets to Mao Mao, mm. and she doesn't have anyone to push it off onto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of stuff gets pushed onto Mao Mao. As the way the volume two goes, it seems like they always rely on her when there's an issue that just boggles the mind, right? Like, oh, this is, like, just so bizarre and weird. Like, how, how did this, like, storehouse catch fire? She has a reputation within the context of the novel that she can solve mm-hmm. and jinchi is like people. more than willing to like just throw her into these situations as well it's yeah because like, he knows like all right he's got confidence in mao mao to solve these issues like these mysterious issues that just conveniently also seem to involve like plant matter mm-hmm. and Always you know stuff that she's yeah. 
interested in, right? Well, I'll just chalk that up to like, well, that's just the nature of writing a book. Malmo just gets herself into binds, like these like annoying situations. Because she is Holmesian protagonist in here, she does find a way. And oftentimes it's like, well, you know, you missed this detail and she like pick up somebody's pipe that was left behind at the at the scene of the incident well also and i like this detail about her she's very 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 selfish she only ever does stuff that's going to benefit her directly and jinchi knows this and he like he offers her oxygen which is like a, a gastrolith from certain types of ruminants that is rumored to have magical healing properties i'm pretty sure if you got a stone from the belly of a ruminant it probably wouldn't do much compared to like penicillin but you know within the setting it's a very valuable item and when she's trying to stop this government official from dying during the ritual she's not like oh no that poor government official i have to save them she's like if i don't do this i won't get my oxbizor from jinshi our our precious little meow meow loves treats she does i'm just gonna chuck my cat out two secs can't be the only one recording a podcast. Leave her alone, dogs. Oh. Uh, welcome back to Nax's Ark, a podcast about the many animals that I own. Anyway, go on. Cats cats love treats. Cats love Mau treats. Mau Mau loves treats. Mau Mau loves funky fungus and weird gallstones from boars and stuff. She's a pain sommelier. She's like a, a poison sommelier. She's like, ah, yes. The, yeah. The wonderful intoxication of the puff of fish poison as it courses through. Yo, yo, Mau Mau would have the sickest YouTube channel. <laughs> that is content creation. That is content creation indeed. She'd probably get arrested for YouTube crimes because like a bunch of 12-year-olds would, oh, she'd get banned. on TikTok would be like, Hey guys, welcome back to my fucking TikTok. It's time for the Bluefish Challenge. Do you get banned from like Twitch or YouTube for spewing on stream too too much? Probably. So I imagine like that's the sort of like content that, you know, if I own Twitch or YouTube, I wouldn't want to like suggest to the youngins that, you know, this is this is good, you know, ingesting poison just to, as a little treat, you know, ingesting blowfish toxins is that is that a good thing is that a good influence for the children that probably isn't i mean you and i have been streaming for years and i don't think we've ever thrown up on stream but if we did i don't think that would get us banned but if like every week you rocked <laughs> up and i was like all right guys get ready and you know people if people were rocking up to the stream to hear me throw up that sounds like the kind of thing that might crack down on not like Holy shit, you know, if I woke up hungover and was like, all right, give me two sex and run off to throw up. Yeah. You're probably mute, though. You're yeah, like, you're very dainty. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Let it, let it be known that Uncle Nax is actually pretty pretty dainty and mm. self-conscious. Extremely self-conscious, yeah. Okay, so we had, like, had a lot of mini mysteries, which I think is fine in apothecary diaries like i kind of like it like this where if i am going to take a break from book from the book and like the book isn't necessarily challenging i just have a challenging life where i might take like a week or two break from reading so it's nice to just be able to pop in and like i know i know these characters and let's just let's just see what trouble they they want to get into today but there is a bit of a like there is an arc there's something of an arc and it like shows up in the second half of the book. We do the investigation into a fire in a storehouse where a guard should have been just watching what was going on, but it looks like something happened in there. And then unrelated to that, there was another incident of poisoning, I believe, right? Yes. Yes. And after that, there was an inheritance squabble, which I'm sure you loved to read about. Oh, yeah. Did they have um, soldering or soldering? How do you say it over there? Sorry. Soldering? 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 Yeah. I say soldering too. Wait, two things that we can agree on in this podcast. <laughs> this is our Normally, best podcast. We're, we're just separated by a common uh, language. Not we today. are in perfect sync today. You know, I of all of the things that I looked up for this, that wasn't one of them. I just assumed that metalwork of this type was pretty common as it was throughout a lot of history. Maybe they did have they did have soldering. I it didn't occur to me to look that up. Yeah. So after all these mysteries, we get a we get a scene where there's this like weird old guy just having a conversation, wears like a monocle or something like that. 
likes to likes to play what is it go it's go right and he also likes another game shogi Go and Shogi, kind of a lecherous old man, giving big, big time lecherous old man vibes. This guy, Lakon. I'm trying not to say like Lakon Stratos, but you know, it's the goddamn Gundam Double O. Lakon, what a character, huh? Am yeah. I right? What? What? A, just what a guy. Yeah. He's got he's got so much going on in this book. Well, he is again. You come to this show for spoilers. Now that's biological father what I know. you mean uh you mean the you mean the um the apothecary guy isn't her father it's this palace functionary who has very bad face blindness and who likes to he's, go to he's autism coded right is he autism coded he has face blindness i don't know if that's necessarily an asd trait but he's definitely neurodivergent in a way that pre-industrial societies were set up to accommodate or even yeah even like society 20 years ago but he he has a very very severe face blindness and can't tell and he has a but he has a fixation on board games that's his main thing that he likes in life in fact he was going to the brothel primarily to have an opponent for his love of shogi and go yeah somebody somebody that's somebody else who i'm thinking is like they're also really fixated on stuff like board games right they don't see people it's like that's how they are matched that is a weird romance right that it that is a weird pair of parents for mal mal but you know, Mal, the way Mal Mal turned out, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's not surprising that, like, Lakan is exactly, like, the type of person that Mal Mal would despise. It's, like, it's her, but it's, like, in, like, a weird, off-putting sort of way. Well, he's never had to assert himself in the same way that Mal Mal has, because mm. she's constantly running up against people in the palace who consider her to be nothing, and she intentionally cultivates this air that she's not a person who is worth being looked at because she knows that that brings trouble Mm. but she also has to put all of this work into surviving in a manner that her father and to a lesser extent her mother who was also revealed in this book don't her biological parents i should say yeah like it's like mao mao just was not blessed with the ability to manipulate people quite like her dad yeah so her dad her dad's like obviously analogous to moriarty you think so yeah professor professor moriarty i mean they were basically one step away from doing a a, uh, a reichenbach fall at the <laughs> at the end of the at the end of their uh their little you know thing there it's like ooh, you know it's the, the game the game is afoot you know i don't know if i agree with that just because moriarty was a genius and he was sherlock holmes lacan is not no, not really. He's just kind of there. I, I didn't get that vibe from him. He's just he's just around, and he's managed to successfully hide his face blindness from everyone else at the palace, but is otherwise kind of an unremarkable palace functionary. I don't think he's Mao Mao's intellectual equal. Maybe he's the main villain of the story who taunts her and gets away with it. Mm. But yeah, I didn't I didn't really get that vibe from it. And I I do like this take on parenthood where like if your parents suck just move on with your life <laughs> like it doesn't it doesn't have to define you it's very jojo's bizarre adventure which is all about bad father figures but also just carrying on with your life and not letting it bog you down which is a thing that i've always appreciated about araki's magnum opus yeah because we don't we don't get like the full story actually this is a I don't know if this is an annoying thing, but it's a thing that annoys me personally is like we don't get a full resolution to the whole mystery in volume two. There is a bit of an attempt at setting up a hook for volume three. There's the incident with the attempted murder at the unknown ritual thing that they were trying to do, right? It's just it's a scene. There was supposed to be a ritual. One of the implements in the ritual was designed by some villain to fall on Jinshi. Like, that was the thing. They, they wish just an attempt at Jinshi's life, or at least to seriously harm him. Was it Jinshi, or was it just a, a palace functionary? I think Jinshi was there. No, because Mao Mao has to dive and protect Jinshi from being seriously hurt by a falling beam. Remember, this is the connection with all the other things that was going on, because the fire at the storehouse was meant to distract everybody right it was a caught to cause a scene because it was a plot to substitute some sort of some things at this ritual 
And part of what was going to go on was because of the inheritance squabble, there was this like secret art to soldering needed to be discovered. But at the same time, because of the way that it works, soldering is going to melt under heat. So heat was a major factor into getting this thing to appear like an accident, right? It's got to appear like an accident. It's the perfect crime. And I'm forgetting what the poisoning was related to they were trying to get the people in charge of the storehouse where they kept the implements that's how they were getting to it is by yeah. poisoning the officials who were in charge of the ritual and keeping the, yeah. the implements together yeah yeah and i know like we're vaguely describing but it's like almost not described in any more detail in the book which is like you know this is what we're knocking it on where it's like the you know verisimilitude it's, there's something missing it is good functionally structurally it's intact it's just it's missing the sort of elements where it's like oh yeah 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 i can see that or like oh i'll just have to look this up there's somebody else at the at the palace that has an interest in botany plants yes things of that nature almost parallel with mau mau but not quite so they only have like one meaningful interaction and it's in i believe it's like at a field of flowers this lady suire she's a little cryptic about the whole thing maybe she's like aware that mau mau is interested in this sort of thing but because she's also central into this attempted plot she can't give too much information but she does suggest like oh yeah these plants like you know could be related to you know the mystery of life what what if we could just solve death what if we could just, uh, you know, come? What if we could just have people come back? The ultimate goal of every apothecary throughout history. So before Mau Mau can get any more information, because she is being pulled from all sides. Unfortunately, it turns out that Siri has taken her life. All signs seem to point towards her being the one that has some sort of responsibility into what has happened. The whole plot, of course, falls apart. Nothing terrible happens to Mau Mau or Jinchi. Like I think Mau Mau just injures her leg a little bit. However, when they're going through some of these details, it looks like the body just gets up and walks away but then we don't like really figure out who is trying to do all this stuff so all the, all the action volume it's going right but then we don't actually get any sort of resolution to that mystery no no instead we get a resolution to not really a resolution but more like a revelation of what is actually the deal with mau mau's family which is like i'll take that okay i'll take that but that's not what you were setting up for like 60 percent of the book it does feel like it's setting stuff up for the future, that there's a larger conflict that we can't understand in this novel that's going to be important when we get to volume 7 or 8 or whatever, but for this novel, it's just kind of taking these little pieces and putting them into place more than it is complete story for its own sake. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. It does have some fun little details. Like, I like the stuff about sex work and the, the reality of it. I feel like they did some research, but also when I interviewed the author of J.K. Haru, uh, Hiratoriko, and I was like, oh, you did research into the realities of sex work? And they were like, no, I didn't. Not even a little bit. So <laughs> going to have to check myself there because I got shut down by an author I have a lot of respect for. But... I do appreciate that level of detail and the thought that they put into it, if not research. And one of the courtesans is dying of syphilis, which is, if you're a history nerd like me, with no friends and no life, lots of people died of syphilis, and it was really horrible, and it was of concern to a lot of people for a very, very long time. And I appreciated that, I liked seeing that, and it makes the sex work more real. It's it's a dangerous profession in this time and place, I should say. I'm not trying to deride sex work as being unfit or, or, or bad or anything by itself, but... In this time and place, it's dangerous, and these women lead a pretty dangerous life. Even the courtesans who work at what Verdigris House is that what it's called? Verdigris House, yeah. Verdigris House, yeah, and who are very, very well known and have all kinds of popular, rich, gentlemanly clients. Even their existence is kind of precarious, and I like those details. I like getting those kind of things, and I think that the novel could do more of that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's got people figured out to a to a good degree. 
in yeah. order to tell the story. But yeah, we just need a we need a little, a little bit more for that, a little bit more setting detail, I think. Yeah, and I think that there's a weird mix of actual real world science and then like stuff that isn't true presented as though it were and i i think you can either do one or the other either all of these characters believe something that isn't true but we the audience knows is true or mao mao is just clever enough and has done enough experiments with poison to know like oh mercury is just gonna kill you like this is just gonna kill you <laughs> oh there's no there's no eternal life formula because i've seen a bunch of people try it and they all you know, they all died immediately because it was super poisonous. Like, yeah, this thing looks really, really pretty, so you think it has great medicinal properties, but actually, it's really dangerous. Yeah, that's where, this is where the fucked up little man part comes up from. <laughs> fucked up and nasty. Mau Mau the poison sommelier. Mau Mau yeah. the... Excuse me, my fine people, but can I interest you in a little jolt of poison this evening? Do you want tingling? Do you want burning? Do you want a long, slow retreat into the dark void that you pull back from immediately? I have all of those things. Like I'm saying, like, would have had an excellent YouTube channel. <laughs> so it seems like we're coming up to the end of Apothecary Diaries Volume 2. There's like some extra stuff between Mau Mau and Jinshi at the end, just because, I mean, there wasn't really that much throughout the book. Yeah, Jinji's absent for a lot of it, which I think is kind yeah. of a good use of him because he should be this kind of flighty character who's, who's always dipping in when it's convenient for him and dipping out when he has something to do. Yeah, and his role in here is to like just give Mau Mau assignments or give her a piece of plot to, to chew on for a little bit. And be an obstacle between her and her well-earned rest. Yeah, the ending is that Mau Mau's biological dad has um his long-awaited reunion with mao mao's mom who is the uh who's the uh may may uh, what was it may may no was she may may yeah may 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 yeah the, one of the courtesans may. at verger's house yeah one of the courtesans is the dying of syphilis mm. it is a very tearful moment it's like the one moment where lockdown is presenting all these like emotions that have been bottled up for all this time it's a good it's a good moment because uh, as they've been they were establishing throughout like the sending off one of the courtesans is like that is a big moment the uh the madame of the house is gonna want to make sure like wherever it is they're gonna have a big old party everybody's gonna know about it it's gonna go into legend it doesn't change the, the fact that they were that they had to hide this lady because she was so sickly like that doesn't I mean it doesn't change anything like the anytime somebody leaves it is it's going to be a big moment and because you know he is who he is he does in fact have money he did lose he lost a game he lost a he lost a board game against his daughter because his daughter you know poisoned him poisoned <laughs> as she is wont to do Poison him in the way that many of us poison our dearest friends and companions mm. by just giving them a little bit too much, a little bit too much juice. I am constantly sending David deadly nightshade, and he's yet to have any. <laughs> he knows if I'm like, oh, you, you want a donut? I got some donuts. He knows not to touch them. <laughs> no, the silvery yeah, powder I mean, on funny. them is just icing. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah, it's a it, that was a, that was at least like a, a fun anticlimax, right? Because like I did mention, like I thought Lacan was um, presenting sort of something of a Moriarty type of arch nemesis, mm. but it really is just because Mamo really doesn't like her dad and is a maybe perhaps a bit dramatic about it, and then the resolution is just like, oh well, I know, I know that he is just a complete baby when it comes to alcohol, so mm. I'm just gonna give him a little bit. Mamo's, of course, just fine. Mamo's probably been drinking since who knows when. Well, she claims repeatedly, oh, I don't care about this. It doesn't matter to me. Who cares? I don't really care about my biological parents. But it's clear that it does bother her. Yeah. Enough to orchestrate a big lavish scene where she poisons him and makes him go mm. buy her sickly syphilitic mother out of indentured servitude at, at Vertigra's house and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. so yeah so we don't we don't get a payoff to whatever is going on with these shadowy outside forces and jinshi but this at least is going to make mao mao i think a, probably gonna make her a stronger character going into volume three but yeah i think with those like last scenes where mao mao does have like some sort of exchange with jinshi i think that was thrown in there as a bit of fan service because 
for a little while we weren't really getting anything between the two and we did say like this is probably their strongest this is the strongest written relationship in the book absolutely 100 percent. the two best most interesting characters and the characters who form the core of the novel unquestionably mm-hmm. and the author knows mm-hmm. it yeah something of a there's something of a divergence from the thing that i think is the biggest selling point of apothecary diaries but it is not for me it's not like a total catastrophe we've spent a lot of time criticizing it and for all that i've said negative about it these books are great and well worth your time well worth my time I like hanging out with these characters, and a lot of the problems that I have are maybe related to light novels structurally more than they are to this particular example. I'm a setting verisimilitude pervert. I want to crunch on setting details and (laughs) and learn about the world, and that's not everyone's focus when it comes to books. But yeah, I, I really do think this is an outstanding example of the genre that's well worth everyone's time. I have not had an opportunity to sit down and watch the TV anime, but I would like to at some point in the future. So that is Apothecary Diaries from us, right? I think uh, I think we've given our final thoughts. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think um, yeah, it's like it's a it's a light recommendation for me, but recommendation nonetheless. I would say it's a strong recommendation, especially if you read a ton of mystery novels, if you're really into Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes and stuff, there's probably a lot more here for you. David Estrella? Yes? My dear, dear friend. Yes. What are we doing on? next time? Oh. <laughs> I feel I feel like you're you're the one that wants to save this. Oh. You're the one. You're the one that really wants to say this on uh, on the on the podcast. We are going back to mean maxing my TRPG in another world, aka Mesugaki Spider novel Masugaki Spider Volume Two. I don't know how many Volume Twos we have left in us. We've been doing Book Club is not Crash for a while, and I don't know how many more of these we can do i think we might have to go back to doing volume ones at some point with the occasional volume two next sprinkled year in. but um yeah we next do, that'll be our plan for next, next year. year yeah but i think we've really done a lot of these novels justice and i've had a lot of fun going back to them but we're running out of light novels to return to and i think that that sounds to me oh. like it'll get a little bit stale for the time being look forward to more book club is not crash as we go check in on what to do when you uh the what what the fuck like the henderson rules or whatever this crap you know what i'm talking about <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as a refresher, this is the one that I really like, and you were sort of like, ah, I was mid. I was a little grumpy, yeah. But we're going yeah. back to it, so it has a, a further chance to impress me. Is it time? <sighs> you know it. <laughs> it's time for recommendations, corner, where we recommend a thing that we like that isn't a light novel for you to go have a look at. Because light novels are not the only form of entertainment and suffer from something of an incestuous problem, much like an imperial royal family. (laughs) Ooh, wow. Yeah, tied it back into the novel this time for the first time ever. David Estrella, what have you been enjoying recently that you think people should check out? Enjoying. Well, enjoying is a strong word, right? (laughs) Enjoyment. Enjoyment is a strong word. And half-hearted recommendations club. <laughs> it's more it's more of like a I just want like a moment to talk about something. Please, um, I wish you would. Yeah, it's a moment moment to talk about something corner. Last night I watched Skinnamarink. Oh, controversial yeah. indie horror film Skinnamarink. What did you think? Yeah. You know, there's like a type of film where it's like you watch it one time and then you never watch it again. You're never compelled to ever watch <laughs> it again, right? But the one time that you watch it is enough, right? You don't have to go back. You're not going to extract more information. It's like that first time is the important time. And boy, Skinner is definitely a one and done type of movie. I was gritting my teeth throughout the whole thing. Crikey. And I, I mean, I hated it. Yeah. But I think that was the point. Hmm that I had a bad time. I had a really bad time watching it. And that is absolutely the point. You, If you have a good time watching this, well, 
I'm sure you've got a lot going on in your life, but yeah, that was a, that was a really bad time. What is this movie? It's a it's a super super low budget horror film about two children being terrorized by a shadowy presence that seems to just disrupt all order in their life and begin to introduce some very discomforting changes to what they assume is a safe environment it makes you feel like very unsettled and unsafe the whole time so it's successful in that regard but whether or not you want to like sit sit and like experience that sort of thing for like an hour and a half it's like i don't know I don't know, like some people when they want to watch a horror movie, it's like it's more for I guess like the excess, right? The kills, this has like no yeah. yeah. This has like no excess and whatever is in it is immediately distasteful, I think, to like any average human. <laughs> but it is effective for, you know, what is basically just a camera in very dark hallways, rooms, just mm. slow panning shots. The worst audio quality you're ever going to experience from a movie. Um, I could not wait for it to be over. And then when it was over, I didn't really feel relief. I just, I felt sort of uh, <laughs> defeated. The two things that I have heard about Skinamarink are this is the most horrible, unsettling thing I've ever seen in my life. I cannot get it out of my head. And this was the most boring film I've ever seen. It was so bad, I don't get it. Which, uh, that, no, that tells you something, no, right? Dude. Like, <laughs> Okay, so like, okay, I'll talk a little bit about myself on this podcast. When I was that age, when I was the age of the characters in the movie, I tended to like wake up in the middle of the night when everything's dark and the only thing that really lights up the room is like maybe the moon or maybe some like mm. led lights right like whatever source of light was there in the room that's the only thing that would like light up the room and i was like i think maybe a lot of people just forget what it's like to be awake in the dark and just like have like just like there's just nothing right it's like just you four year four year old you and the void that is your experience with the void, just waking up in the middle of the night. Crikey. And some people forget about this, right? Like, because they just, they're not impacted by it. And then mm. there's like somebody like me, where I remember a lot of nights where I was just awake in the dark. Yeah, I think like Skin and Rink is probably more effective depending on what people have boxed, like memories that have been boxed from that age, like experiences of sure, yeah. being like very, very young and just in the dark. And perhaps even like unsupervised, right? Or like not being aware of like an adult presence. Mm. Anyway, uh, yeah, probably never going to watch that again. <laughs> so. I was talking to a friend of the show, the indie VTuber, Hen of Mimi, and this was a while ago. And she was just like, dude, it was so bad. Like it was so boring and nothing happened to <laughs> it. Uh, so yeah, I think when a, a work can provoke those two very disparate reactions, there's probably something to it. Uh, yeah, Even I've been to meaning it. to watch it myself. I may just do so now that you've recommended it. As for me, I think you should go out and watch the first Slam Dunk. I'm not really a believe the hype kind of guy, but really, truly, like, believe the hype. This was an excellent, excellent time. What a great film. It's such a... Uh, I, I can't even talk about it. Like, everything about it is just fantastic. It's, it's so much fun. I saw it in the cinema. I'm not a big, like, the power of cinema person, but if you believe that... <laughs> Going to the cinema really, truly enhances the experience. Please go and see it in the cinema. I, I would say just go and watch it. Like, it's just fantastic on every level. Really emotional. Like, people will just sob the whole way through this two-hour film. Uh, really asserts why Slam Dunk is, like, the definitive shonen sports manga and anime and film. It's just so much fun. And also, like, a really fun time capsule into how much basketball has changed since like the early 90s as well which is really really cool uh, it really kickstarted or helped to kickstart i suppose the popularity of basketball in japan which is a thing that uh, is going on to this day uh, at one point you know the the coach is like all right that was good but we can't just run up the court and shoot threes all game because it'll get defended and i'm like oh really you can't just make plays all game where you run up and shoot threes <laughs> 
<laughs> so this is a period piece? Yeah, it's a period piece. It's an early 90s wow. period piece named after <laughs> the slam dunk, which was like the big innovation in the 90s. Is You know, you just shake and bake the defense and run up and dunk as much as you can and score a bunch of points that way. Fantastic start to finish. Pay for your whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. Ooh. Can't recommend it highly enough. I will say... By way of criticism, I don't particularly think the CG animation looks nice, and I think it was very mean of them to have this amazing intro where, like, the characters slowly get drawn in, and you're like, yeah, the boys, it's them, they're back! Oh, it's my boys! Oh, oh, it's the Tohoku basketball team! I haven't seen you guys in ages! And then the film looks like the opening to Phantom Blood (laughs) for large parts of it, but... Yeah, don't let it spoil your enjoyment. No. It's it's so much fun. Like, just absolutely makes an argument for the shonen sports anime being a really, really compelling genre. I just, I like go go watch this fucking film. Really, really fantastic. Believe the hype. Believe the hype. I'm not a believe the hype guy, but this mm. time you should believe the hype. Go watch the first slam dunk. This is an incredibly messed up double feature that we have set up. Yeah. Before, but. <laughs> Uh, I went to go see a double feature of Donnie Darko and Bong Joon-ho's Parasite once, and by the end of that night, I just wanted to fucking kill myself. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Don't watch those two films back to back. You won't feel good about existence after it. Well... That is the time that all the time that we have for you, for books, Annie for for any gamers. That's that's the end. That is all of us. Thank you for hanging out, my friends. It's always lovely to have you. Follow me on Twitter, Alive in the Wired. Check us out on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash Bean. We stream video games. We have a good time. Check out the Patreon as well. Please check out the Patreon. We do this because we love doing it, uh, and your support really means the the world to us. Whether you support us monetarily or whether you can't afford to, which we totally understand, but thanks for being here all the same. It it really does mean a lot to us. We're not doing it for the money. We're very much doing it for the love of the game. Doing it for the love of the game. Much like in the first Slam Dunk, a really good film you should go watch. Anyway, don't forget MSGK Spider <laughs> min-maxing your oh. TTRPG skills in uh, in another world. That's the next book. I'm excited for that one. I don't know about you. Yeah, I- I'm excited to read a capital L, capital N light novel about getting isekai'd and having a bride and gaming the system. It's good. We haven't done one of those in a while. It's gonna be fun. <laughs> Uh, you just finished describing a lot of books. But, I did. Okay, yeah, let's go. Let's go. Let's do it. Anyway, we are gonna finish off with what we always say at the end of these uh, at the end of these episodes. What do we say? Stay valid. Stay valid. Stay, Stay valid. valid. All you readers out there. Bye bye. Keep on reading. Stay valid. Bye.